page 269. I'm going to give you a little bit of context and, and summary, and this is why if you have a bulletin, it'll come in handy because I'm going to read very quickly through that little brown sheet here in just a moment. This is something we started a little bit in the fall, as I mentioned earlier. So we spent parts of October and November, and I think the first week in December, talking about these later years in David's life. And so I'm trying to wrap up the story because it, it's all really, David is the central figure but the uh, central antagonist would be Absalom, uh, though David is certainly not without fault in this whole narrative as it develops, as I've tried to point out in the weeks past. But I can hardly bring everybody up to speed if, if, uh, if you're unfamiliar with the story. But the brown sheet will give you a little bit of a taste as to how things developed. So it reads like this. In chapter 11, David commits adultery. He tries to conceal his sin, and he arranges Uriah's death, that is, Bathsheba's husband. That's part of the concealing. In chapter 12, the prophet Nathan confronts David. David confesses, and I probably should have put in Psalm 51, because it's more clear uh, by adding the psalm than what it is in chapter 12. And then point C, he is forgiven, but he and his family will suffer consequences. David is told... You will not pay for your sin. The Lord has taken it away. But you will suffer consequences for your sin. If Christ is your Savior, you don't have to pay for your sin, but that does not mean that the Lord will always remove consequences of your sin. Chapter 13 is when uh, these consequences begin to be seen, fleshed out. Chapter 13, Amnon, the crown prince, the oldest son of David, he violates his half-sister Tamar. Absalom, another one of David's sons, Tamar's brother, murders Amnon two years later. Absalom lives as a fugitive for three years with his father-in-law in the kingdom of Geshur. Chapter 14. Joab procures Absalom's return to Jerusalem. That is, after those three years. Absalom remains estranged from David for another two years. So five years of estrangement from his father. Absalom, at the end of chapter 14, presses hard and his father David tenuously receives him. Chapter 15. Absalom carefully amasses a following over the next four years. Absalom successfully launches a conspiracy from Hebron. David flees Jerusalem with his household and royal regiment, encountering a variety of friends and um, foes is not exactly right because there's no fighting going on, but detractors, uh, people who are not friendly to David. He, he encounters both friends and detractors as he exits Jerusalem. Chapter 16, David is still leaving Jerusalem. It's a long part of the story. Absalom triumphantly enters Jerusalem, and Ahithophel provides forceful and effective counsel to Absalom. Ahithophel is considered uh, incredibly wise, gifted, I'm going to say, by God. And so what he says is like hearing from God himself, though he's not called a prophet. Then in chapter 17, 
Hushai, an ally of David's, plays upon Absalom's fears and appeals to his pride and ego, convincing him to delay the immediate pursuit of David. That's what Ahithophel advised. You should immediately go after, I will immediately go after David. We will kill David, the kingdom will be yours. And Hushai said, not so fast. I mean, you know your father. Boy, he's like a, he's like a bear. He's got a lot of experience. You know his military background, playing on Absalom's fears. And then he plays to Absalom's pride. Well, I think it would be better, uh, Absalom, if instead of letting Ahithophel go out and kill David, you garner yourself as big an army as you can from all over Israel, and you go get David yourself and think of the glory, think of the, uh, the praise that you will receive. Uh, that's Hushai's advice, which Absalom decides to take. Ahithophel then, in 17, commits suicide, and then finally in chapter 17, David and his company are refreshed and re-energized, which actually we haven't read And I'm not going to read it to you this morning, but I'll give you the gist of the end of chapter 17. It sets the stage for chapter 18. In chapter 17, we've got the the stage set between Absalom, the son of David, and David himself. Uh, And we saw some of the background that I just read to you. Uh, Absalom appoints over his army a man named Amasa. That is his cousin. Uh, By being his cousin, it's David's nephew. That's Absalom's commander of his army. David, on his part, has three commanders. Joab, Abishai, and Atai. Joab and Abishai are also nephews of David. Which means they are also cousins of Amasa and Absalom. So this is very much a family affair. It's like family feud in the Bible in 2 Samuel chapter 17. Uh, it's, it's really like most kingdoms did, and really governments and politicians still do. If uh, you become the chief executive, you tend to reward your friends and, and your family with key governmental positions because they're probably more likely to, you're more likely to trust them than an outsider. That's just the way the, wor- the, way the world works. So you've got a lot of family members involved, but then Atai is actually a Philistine, and he's over one-third of David's uh, army. That's setting the stage. At the end of chapter 17, you're introduced to three individuals who are all non-Israelite, and they all show David uh, support. Uh, they all uh, provide a means for David and his men. They're feeding them. They're providing, uh, I, I assume, shelter as well as food. They're doing all of that for David so that David is energizing his men. He's, be, he's able to regroup while Absalom is mustering up an army from all over Israel. How much time all this took? Some people say uh, it could have been really a matter of a, number, a good many days, maybe. Uh, Maybe it took uh, several weeks. I don't know how much time transpired, but that's what's happening at the end of chapter 17, getting us ready for what comes next in chapter 18. I want to share a word from 
Eugene Peterson's book, Run with the Horses, which the men are going through at Men's Breakfast. I shared a terrific quote from the book last week. I've got another terrific quote this week. This is in one of the two chapters we will read prior to our meeting on a Wednesday morning in another couple weeks. He's got a, a thought on friendship, which is just so good, and it fits so well with these three individuals showing David kindness. Kindness. Now, when Eugene Peterson writes this book, Run with the Horses, he's talking about the prophet Jeremiah. And his point is, Jeremiah had friends. But just like Jeremiah had friends, David has friends too. And sometimes those friends come in unlikely circumstances. But here's what Eugene Peterson writes. The simple fact that Jeremiah had friends says something essential about him. He needed friends. He was well-developed in his interior life. It was impossible to deter Jeremiah from his course by hatred or by flattery. He was habituated to solitude, but he needed friends. No one who is whole is self-sufficient. The whole life, the complete life, cannot be lived with haughty independence. People need community. They need friends, which is why there's wisdom in some of the Proverbs about choosing your friends wisely. He goes on to say, Our goal cannot be to not need anyone. One of the evidences of Jeremiah's wholeness was his capacity to to receive friendship, to let others help him, to be accessible to mercy. It is easier to extend friendship to others than to receive it ourselves. In giving friendship, we share strength. But in receiving it, we show weakness. Those last couple lines are just, to me, it encapsulated so much about what friendship really ought to be. Eugene Peterson is a terrific writer. I don't agree with everything he's ever done or written, but he can really capture some uh, insightful thoughts in his books. It is easier to extend friendship to others than to receive it ourselves. In giving friendship, we share strength. But in receiving it, we show weakness. Uh, We all ought to cultivate friendships where people can speak into our lives and that we can share our weakness, even as they share their weakness with us, and we can also draw upon one another's strengths. That's one of the reasons why the church is the church. It's meant to share our weaknesses and our strengths together. All right, let's go back to uh, 2 Samuel. Now we're in chapter 18. I'm going to play the entire chapter. I'm going to have David Suchet read it for you. I don't have it written out for you this week. Uh, You can, depending on what kind of a learner you are, if you want to try to follow along in your own Bible, though it may not match up perfectly, he reads out of the New International Version. Or if you're not a person that needs to follow along, if you just listen... Uh, It's a terrific story. David Suchet does a great job uh, reading all of the Bible, and and chapter 18 is no exception. So listen to David Suchet's take on 2 Samuel chapter 18. 2 Samuel chapter 18 David mustered the men who were with him and appointed over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David sent out his troops a third under the command of Joab, 
a third under Joab's brother Abishai, son of Zeruiah, and a third under Ittai the Gittite. The king told the troops, I myself will surely march out with you. But the men said, You must not go out. If we are forced to flee, they won't care about us. Even if half of us die, they won't care. But you are worth ten thousand of us. It would be better now for you to give us support from the city. The king answered, I will do whatever seems best to you. So the king stood beside the gate while all his men marched out in units of hundreds and of thousands. The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, Be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king give orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. David's army marched out of the city to fight Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There Israel's troops were routed by David's men, and the casualties that day were great, twenty thousand men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside, and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in mid-air while the mule he was riding kept on going. When one of the men saw what had happened, he told Joab, I have just seen Absalom hanging in an oak tree. Joab said to the man who had told him this, What? You saw him? Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? Then I would have had to give you ten shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. But the man replied, Even if a thousand shekels were weighed out into my hands, I would not lay a hand on the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, Protect the young man Absalom for my sake. And if I had put my life in jeopardy and nothing is hidden from the king, you would have kept your distance from me. Joab said, I'm not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And ten of Joab's armor-bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him and killed him. Then Joab sounded the trumpet, and the troops stopped pursuing Israel, for Joab halted them. They took Absalom, threw him into a big pit in the forest, and piled up a large heap of rocks over him. Meanwhile, all the Israelites fled to their homes. During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself, for he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. He named the pillar after himself, and it is called Absalom's Monument to this day. Now Ahimhaz, son of Zadok, said, Let me run and take the news to the king that the Lord has vindicated him by delivering him from the hand of his enemies. You are not the one to take the news today, Joab told him. You may take the news another time, but you must not do so today, because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed down before Joab and ran off. Ahimahaz, son of Zadok, again said to Joab, Come what may, please let me run behind the Cushite. But Joab replied, My son, why do you want to go? 
You don't have any news that will bring you a reward. He said, Come what may, I want to run. So Joab said, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. While David was sitting between the inner and outer gates, the watchman went up to the roof of the gateway by the wall. As he looked out, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out to the king and reported it. The king said, If he is alone, he must have good news. And the runner came closer and closer. Then the watchman saw another runner, and he called down to the gatekeeper, Look, another man running alone. The king said, He must be bringing good news too. The watchman said, It seems to me that the first one runs like Ahimahaz, son of Zadok. He's a good man, the king said. He comes with good news. Then Ahimahaz called out to the king, All is well. He bowed down before the king with his face to the ground and said, Praise be to the Lord your God. He has delivered up those who lifted their hands against my lord the king. The king asked, Is the young man Absalom safe? Ahimahaz answered, I saw great confusion just as Joab was about to send the king's servant and me, your servant, but I don't know what it was. The king said, Stand aside and wait here. So he stepped aside and stood there. Then the Cushite arrived and said, My lord the king, hear the good news. The Lord has vindicated you today by delivering you from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king asked the Cushite, Is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite replied, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. There was actually a time when uh, we went over David's reaction to that news when we were talking about the relationship between David and Absalom some weeks ago. So I'm not going to focus so much on that specific aspect of it, but let's break down the story. First of all, just some general observations or impressions. One commentator writes, everything that shouldn't happen, in fact, happens. In this story, it has a lot of plot twists. It starts off with, uh, early on, David gives a, a very explicit, strict order, and that order is disobeyed. That shouldn't have happened. He's the king. But what should not have happened is what happened. David uh, has an army of you know, several thousand. Absalom presumably has an army he's garnered from all over Israel. The advice was to get an army like the sand of the sea. And so Absalom's army should prevail. Absalom seems to go out with a lot of uh, bravado, but he winds up uh, being hung up in a tree and he winds up being buried under a pile of rocks. He should have been buried uh, with his monument that he directed for himself as a testimony to who he was. But instead he's buried under the pile of rocks. All those things don't seem to fit. They likely shouldn't have happened. Joab actually winds up commissioning a Cushite to go tell David, and Ahimaaz 
keeps saying, I want to go, I want to go, eventually Joab relents and, and allows Ahimehaz to also go. The Cushite should arrive first. He's had a head start. But in fact, what should have happened isn't what happened. Ahimehaz arrives first, and he shares his news before the Cushite. So all these things that, that should have happened, it, the way the story is it unfolds, is really not what does happen. When David finds out that the one who is trying to kill him and take over the kingdom, uh, the threat is removed, his son is dead, the army ought to be celebrating and con- congratulated. But instead, David is so overcome with sorrow and grief that in chapter 19, which I'm not planning on doing, but in chapter 19, Joab basically has to call David on the carpet and say, it's going to get even worse if you, you don't snap out of it. You're the king. You need, to, you need to act like a king. The army's feeling defeated, and they were spared. Like you don't even care about them. So all these, these things that don't seem to fit the way the story is told, but it's in fact the way the story plays out. Now let's break it down. Initially, David intends to go with the army. Uh, it doesn't tell me why he wants to go, but the people are, are insistent, you must not go. And they're very clear why he shouldn't go, because you're worth more than we are. You're the king. You're the lamp of Israel. You're the light of Israel. You're the anointed one. You know, God has put you in this place. And so, you stay behind, we'll go instead. I think David wants to go, though it doesn't say. I suspect he wants to go because he wants to deal, make sure that Absalom, his son, is dealt with gently. But it doesn't specifically tell us that. Uh, by the way, this is really a long-standing tradition. So this will, just a little nuanced side story. A lot of times when David's sin against Bathsheba is told, it says at the t- in the spring of the year, when armies go out to fight, uh, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. You've, you've probably read that in, in chapter 11. And the way the story is often told is that David never should have stayed back in Jerusalem. And that was the first mistake. He stayed behind when he should have been with his men. In fact, I don't think that's true. I think it was already a long-standing tradition in David's case. You're the king. You, you are unique. You are God's anointed. He's been staying behind for a long time uh, for very practical reasons. I can actually show you the exact reason in chapter 21, which in some sense may seem confusing because chapter 21 gives us a little story that happened much earlier in David's life, but it's not recorded until the end of David's life. Uh, the Bible often does that. The Bible isn't as uh, intent on a strict chronology as it is in telling uh, important aspects of a story no matter when they actually occurred. So if you look at chapter 21 for just a moment, it reads earlier in David's career is what I'm talking about. In chapter 21 and verse 15 it reads, There was war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishbi Banab, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid 
and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. So, I really think the standard practice, at least in David's life, I think uh, oftentimes well beyond David's life, is that the king doesn't go out to battle because he's different. He's special. He's the lamp of Israel. He's God's gift to Israel to reign over us. So, now go back to chapter 18. He intends to go. He, he agrees he will not go because he's the king. And then he gives a very explicit command, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And the first question is, is that even a reasonable request to deal gently with the young man Absalom? Well, David says, it's not for his sake, it's for my sake. I think David recognizes, I know you don't owe Absalom any kindness. You don't owe him to spare his life, but for my sake, out of respect for me, out of love for me or kindness to me, spare my son Absalom. Actually, not my, uh, my son, the young man Absalom. I continue to maintain it is intentional that Absalom is not named as David's son until after he's dead. I think David is very conflicted. I think he's got a horrible relationship with his son Absalom. Uh, with whom he was estranged for five years. And then the next four years, Absalom is undermining David. I don't think they've had a close relationship those four years either. And so ever since Absalom killed the crown prince Amnon, David has referred to Absalom as the young man and not his son. So deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Now, you can kind of compare that to King Saul's response to his son, Jonathan. Jonathan had not conspired against his father, King Saul. All Jonathan did was defend David. David isn't after you, father. But Saul wanted his son, Jonathan, to be the one to succeed him. Jonathan is my son. I want to establish a dynasty in Israel. But Jonathan recognized The Lord has chosen David, my best friend. And I will support David through thick and thin. And Saul was so angered by this that he threw a spear at his own son to uh, presumably try to kill him. That's how Saul reacted to somebody who actually wasn't conspiring against him. Whereas Absalom is actually conspiring against his father, King David, and David's response is deal gently with the young man. Quite a contrast between the two. Then, this question, why would David give the order to deal gently with this young man? It's easy to say, and most commentators will make the point, well, he is his father after all. I mean, who wants to see, who wants to hear that their own son has died in battle? So he is the father after all, but I think it's much more complicated than that. I think David is riddled with his own guilt. Because I think David recognizes all that's happening in his family where the walls are crumbling down, things are turning out very poorly. It is all in accordance with what Nathan the prophet said. You've brought hardship into your family because of your sin. This is, this is partly because of your sin. Now, Absalom is wholly responsible for his own sin. But David plays a part as well. And David knows that. 
And so David is willing to give the command, deal gently with, with the young man Absalom. Because David realizes he didn't get death himself from the Lord based on his own sin. So, verse 6, the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated. I like what one commentator said. The fight is over almost before it begins. You've had all this build-up from the time David is leaving Jerusalem. And that goes on through parts of two chapters. You've got all that build-up. You've got all this advice. Absalom comes into Jerusalem. He gets advice from several different sources. He's mustering an army. David's camping over on the other side of the Jordan. He's uh, benefiting some, from some Gentile friends of his. And then you finally get to the battle, and it's the army went out into the field against Israel. The battle was fought. The men of Israel were defeated. And there's not much to that part of the story. Because that's not the author's intent. His story is, is much more acute, much more honed in on the specific antagonist, Absalom, and not all of Israel. And so we've got Absalom, and who happened to meet the servants of David. He happened to meet them. He wasn't looking to meet them. He happened to meet them. According to the theological word, word book of the Old Testament, that verb denotes a planned encounter wherein the subject intentionally confronts the object. So he happened to meet them, not because Absalom's looking for them, but the servants of David are looking for Absalom. And this is all by in fulfillment of what the Lord said would, was going to happen. Because the Lord had determined that Absalom would be brought down. If you want to put it in Star Wars testimony, uh, this is Absalom, this is your destiny. This is your destiny. And it's all being fulfilled in accordance with, you'll find it in chapter 17, the last part of verse 14. So Absalom is, he sees the servants of David. I think he panics. He's on a mule because a mule is considered a royal transport rather than a horse, which is military transport. So he spurns the mule on and the mule rushes under its very thick, dense woods. Absalom, technically in the text, his head gets caught in the, in the oak. Uh, the NIV read his hair. Whether it's his head or his hair, I don't think his hair was exempt. I think... Personally, I think his hair is what got himself tangled up, but the text says his head. I think it's, I don't think it's a sharp distinction there. I think the fact that Ab, much to do was made about Absalom's hair way back in chapter 14, I think it's playing into this part of the story. The mule keeps running, and he's just hanging, Absalom. In fact, it says he was suspended between heaven and earth, which is a really interesting way to put it. He's kind of suspended between life and death. He's suspended between being a uh, treasonous against the king and experiencing the pardon of his father. He's, he's suspended between justice and mercy. He's suspended between heaven and earth. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, officially it reads in the text in the ESV, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. A certain man 
who would be delightful to know who this individual was. He's not named. And Joab's response repeats back what the man said, though it's not reflected in the English Standard Version, because in the English Standard Version it reads... Well, I'm not sure I can... Oh, verse, uh, verse 11 in the English Standard says, What? You saw him? And that kind of misses the point that he's repeating what the man said. The man said, Behold, I saw. And Joab says, Behold, you saw. Why then didn't you strike the man down? And the man says, well, I'll give you three reasons why I didn't strike him down. It's the king's son which kind of sounds like David when he had several opportunities to strike down King Saul. And David recognized you don't strike the Lord's anointed. So the man said, essentially, I'm not going to strike him down because that's the Lord's anointed. It's the king's son. Number two, we all know what the king said. Deal gently with the young man Absalom. That's reason number two. Reason number three is that this won't be hidden from the king. And the king may want to strike me down, and I know you're not going to come to my aid. You will be happy to throw me under the bus. That's exactly what he says in the text, if you paraphrase it. I can't depend on you, Joab, to get me out of trouble. Remember like uh, when uh, Jesus rose from the dead, and the Roman soldiers could be in really hot water, and the Jewish leadership said, uh, tell everybody that the disciples stole the body. And if you're going to get in trouble, we'll come to your defense. We'll, we'll bribe somebody. We'll pay him off. Well, this certain man can't count on Joab to do that. So far as Joab is concerned, is if he would have struck down the king's son, Joab would be happy to let him perish because of it. But this certain man is willing to do the right things no matter what the cost. You're offering me ten shekels. You could give me a thousand shekels. I'm going to do what the king said to do. That would make a really good Christian. That would make a really good Christian. I don't care what the world says. I don't care what my friends are doing. I don't care what their values are. I don't care how much money you can earn there. I don't care how much, how enjoyable I may find that, uh, whatever that thing is. If God said to do this, that's what I'm going to do. That's a certain man. A great model of what is right and true, regardless of the circumstances. Well, Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. Like, I'm, he's not going to try to debate him. He's not going to argue with him. Joab's going to take matters into his own hands. Joab is a military man through and through. Joab is a take-no-prisoners kind of guy. Joab is going to do what he thinks is best for the kingdom and best for the king, and he's right. One commentator says, we might say that Joab was correct, but he was not right. It really is going to be best for Israel if Absalom is dead. But it's not the right thing to do because the king gave the order not to kill him. So Joab acts independently, wrongly, in the best interests of the kingdom, but he disobeys David's direct command. And that's Joab. That's, that's his life story. Uh, he's done that many times. So he takes, my Bible says, three javelins. It's really three sticks. Uh, so there's lots of limbs in this forest. He takes three limbs. By saying that sticks, he uh, puts them in Absalom's heart. It doesn't mean the thing that's pumping in your chest. It means in your abdomen. Because he's not dead. He takes three limbs 
plunges them in Absalom, and then he has his uh, his other ten uh, armor bearers surround him, and they finish him off. And by doing that, David won't be able to blame any one person for his son's death. Because David has shown in the past, there's a really terrific story, I think it's in Second Samuel chapter 1 or 2, where when David receives word that King Saul is dead, and King Saul's son Jonathan is dead, when he receives that word, David kills the messenger. Because the messenger has actually aided the process of Saul dying because he was wounded. And David said, you're going to strike the Lord's anointed? You think you brought me good news? You're going to pay for the news you brought. But by having ten men surround Absalom to finish him off, it's kind of unclear how he died or under what circumstances. And so David, he, Joab does not expect David to uh, exact vengeance on any one individual. And then he's got this matter of disposing Absalom's body, which uh, Absalom had built a monument for himself, but he's buried under a pile of rocks which is like the pile of rocks Achan was buried under when the Israelites took Jericho. And a man named Achan took some treasure out of Jericho and hid it in his tent. And then the Israelites lost the next battle, and it was discovered. They killed Achan and those involved with him, and they buried him under a pile of rocks. And the idea is, this isn't a state funeral. We're not honoring Achan We're not honoring Absalom, but the pile of rocks is a warning to anybody that that trespasses against the king, that goes against the Lord's anointed. To this day in Israel, there is a place called Absalom's Monument, which by all accounts is not Absalom's Monument. But Absalom's Monument was a real thing. And so centuries later, somebody built this thing and they called it Absalom's Monument. And so it's still in recognition of what was true, Absalom really did have a monument, and for centuries, uh, pilgrims would pelt Absalom's monument with stones to express their own disgust and distaste for Absalom going against the Lord's anointed. That's a real thing. Then you've got Joab blowing the trumpet uh, to keep the troops back from pursuing all of Israel. The battle's over. And at this point, it's really interesting because Joab is actually following the advice of Ahithophel. Because Ahithophel's advice to Absalom was, let me go get David. If I will see to it that David dies, and once David is out of the picture, all of Israel will be yours. The battle's over if we get the one man. Well, that's the same advice Joab follows. Joab gets the one man, and he knows all the rest of Israel is going to fold like a house of cards. They're not going to be a problem once we've got Absalom. And so he blows the trumpet saying the battle's over. The man that was against David that incited all this rebellion, incited this civil war, he's out of the picture. The battle's over. And I see I'm way out of time. Which is unfortunate, which means I've got to finish it next week. But the good thing is, I'm not sure if there's a good thing. But I hate to rush the last part of the story because there's a little bit of interest there. So I may be able to start into Ephesians next week as well. I don't, or maybe, I'll fin- maybe I will do the early part of chapter 19. This is such a disaster. <laughs> anyway, what are your comments or questions from today? Mildred. That's interesting, okay? 
Here's, here's what most commentators and Bible scholars take out of all this. In other words, Absalom's got this civilian army. He outnumbers David's army. But David's men are hired mercenaries for the most part. Well-trained. They've been doing this for a long time. So they are very skilled in matters of war. Absalom's army is this big civilian group. They're not well-equipped, but they have a lot of numbers. Uh, I think David... His three army generals have made it so that the battlefield will be in this very dense forest because they know they will fight well there. That will be to their advantage, though they're outmanned. Uh, If they were to meet in an open plain, the sheer numbers of Absalom might overwhelm them or they might experience greater loss of life. But in in this dense forest with ravines and rocks and everything else, it's to their advantage and in fact, a lot of people died in the ravines and the rocks and, you know, it's just not this open, plain battlefield. It's not uh, Megiddo kind of a thing. That's interesting. Somebody else? And you'll have to remember this for next week because the big application that we get out of this really is born out of even this part of the story. But I need to finish the story of how, how is this word going to get back to David? How, uh, how will David receive it? How do we get it back to him? Uh, what will be re- the response? And then what is the lesson for us out of all this? And all of this, back when I started what I thought would be a one-week lesson in Second Samuel, I think back then I told you there are two main lessons, one of which is sin has consequences, and one of which is God's grace is greater than our sin. And both of those do play out in all of the story and in David's life. Uh, The best of us is still a sinner. The best of us, we will still experience certain consequences to our sin, though God may, in his mercy, mitigate those consequences, or he may not. But God's grace will prevail at the end of the day for those whose faith is in Christ. No other questions? Comments? Yes. Oh, no, I don't really plan on talking about that. Uh, If I did that, I would have to be in the first chapters of Proverbs, probably. And uh, then I couldn't promise we'd be in Ephesians anytime soon. (laughs) So David David did have a a much different relationship with his son Solomon. Uh, How he became king, Solomon became king, is told in 1 Kings probably chapter 1 and or chapter 2. But a lot of Proverbs, which is, Proverbs is written by Solomon, and Solomon reflects back on how he was raised by his father. His father was David. So that relationship is really fleshed out in the book of Proverbs. But I'm not going to make time for it. Vicki? Yeah, the contrast between David always referring to the young man Absalom. And when the messengers come, is it well with the young man Absalom? He, he never calls him his son while he's living. The young man Absalom. Is it well with the young man Absalom? And then he finds out he's dead and he's all of a sudden, my son, my son, Absalom. And it's too late. Absalom didn't hear those words. Anyone else? Yes? Orthodox means straight. So orthopedics has to do with making things straight. So orthodox means straight. We're playing it straight. We're following Scripture. 
We're doing what God intended. Doesn't mean they are, but they've got the word. So orthodox has to do with being straight. Straight doctrine, straight practice has to do with straight. There are Christians in the Eastern Orthodox tradition. There are Christians in the Western, uh, Western tradition, uh, whether it be, in some cases, Catholic, Roman Catholic, or Protestant. There are unbelievers in both as well. There are wheat and tares, no matter what group you find. Wheat and tares. I, would, I, don't, I don't think this would get, be controversial. You can be a Christian and be in a Roman Catholic church. You cannot be a good Roman Catholic and be a Christian. A good Roman Catholic that follows the teaching of the church is antithetical to salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone with all that they've added on to it. But there are Christians in a Roman Catholic church. Luther was a Christian in the Roman Catholic church for a long time, as were many others. But uh, he realized there came a point where he had to break because his loyalty had to be to Christ and the gospel and and the true church and not merely a tradition. Tradition is important, but it doesn't trump Scripture. Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.